0: Welcome to this episode of the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast, where it's all about small animal emergency and critical care. Primary survey, secondary survey, analgesia, fluids, shock, trauma. We've got it covered. And now, here's your host. Never afraid to bring the jibber jabber. It's Shailen Jassani. Hello and welcome to the Veterinary ECC Small Talk podcast with me, Shailen Jasani. Thanks for joining me once again. On today's episode, I'm joined by Enid Traisman, who is the Director of Pet Loss Support Services at Dove Lewis, which is a non-profit emergency animal hospital in Portland, Oregon, in the United States. And we're going to be talking about emotional well-being in the veterinary profession. So more about that in a minute, but first I would like to thank everyone who has left a rating and review comment in iTunes since the last episode. Uh, Thankfully, there have been a few, um, and I won't read any of them out individually, but thanks so much to those of you who have taken the time to do this. As always, it is really very much appreciated. Okay, so let's get into today's episode, and as I mentioned, I'm joined by Enid Traisman. So thanks so much for joining me today, Enid.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: It's my pleasure, truly. Um, So this podcast is one that I have been particularly looking forward to for some time, and I really appreciate you taking the time out to share your insights and expertise with our audience about an area which I think that probably doesn't get as much coverage as yet as it deserves. Yes,
1: it's true, and I am glad to say, though, that this is becoming a topic topic of great importance for many people in the veterinary community, and I am hearing more and more requests from different veterinary hospitals who would like to learn more about how they can support their veterinary professionals.
0: Yeah, that's, that's fantastic to hear, and I hope that, um, you know, one of the reasons wanting to do this podcast is it's obviously a free resource, and I hope that, you know, we can get as many people as possible to, to engage with the topic and share this podcast and so on. So, Inid, I wonder if you could start by telling the audience firstly about yourself, so about your background and your training, and then also about, you know, Dove Lewis and what you do there. Um, Dove Lewis is a place that I've personally been aware of for some time, and it seems like a very cool place um, with a great culture and ethos, and so I'm really looking forward to finding out some more about it today.
1: Well, I'm so happy to share it. I got my master's in social work back in 1986. And that was around the time that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross had just come into our consciousness here in the United States. And she sort of brought the topic of death and dying out of the closet. At that same time, I was doing my internship at a hospital in the neonatal intensive care unit. And what was so amazing that year is that they interpreted Elizabeth the Kubler-Ross's recommendations by bringing rocking chairs into the rooms of parents who had delivered stillborn or severely deformed babies that did not survive outside the womb. The rocking chair was there for the parents to hold their babies and to grieve over them. And this was new. Prior to this, these uh, parents were sent home with empty hearts and empty arms. But what I, I saw in my internship was when you validate the loss of a loved one, it helps a person begin to heal. It says to them, yes, of course you've experienced a loss, and you need to grieve your loved one. Around that same time, I also read a book by Jamie Quackenbush, and he was a uh, social worker on the East Coast who was doing pet loss support. So if you can imagine it was like the trumpets blared in my head this was it my love for animals animals could be combined with what i had learned about the ability of the human spirit to cope and heal after a death and so i set out about uh, to talk to my veterinarian to see if i could start a pet loss support group here in portland oregon now again this was 1986 and this was still considered a disenfranchised type of a loss. And so my veterinarian looked at me when I made that request like I was crazy. And he said, oh no, I'm sorry Enid, we can't have a pet loss support group here. We want people to come here so that we can help them and help their animals to heal. We don't want to talk about death. And I got that same response from a half a dozen different veterinary hospitals until somebody pointed me and directed me to Dove Lewis, which, as you noted, is a nonprofit. And I uh, made my request to them, and I said, I'd like to voluntarily start a pet law support group for you to support the community. I talked about the, the ability of the human spirit to cope and to heal with support and understanding. And they accepted my proposal. And I again, this was back 30 years ago, 30 years ago this month, that I started the pet law support program here where it's been an absolute honor to support people who are anticipating or have experienced the loss of a companion animal.
0: So 30 years is fantastic. I didn't realize it'd been going for, um, for quite that length of time. That's, that's really very awesome.
1: Thank you. It's, 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 in a way, it seems like it's gone very quickly, but in another way, it's been such uh, an honor to see this industry grow and especially exciting you know as we'll be talking about today that that we're noting that not only do people who lay people who love their companion animals deserve this kind of support but the veterinary community and the shelter community and the people who work with animals absolutely need to have the tools and support to deal with their love and loss of pets, because as we all know, no matter how well we care for them, how great of a food we feed them, and veterinary care we give them, that our companion animals' lifespans are not as long as our own.
0: Yeah, so, Ina, Before we uh, before we get carry on with that, I wanted to just um, pick up on a couple of things, just to ask you out of interest, really. So, during your time in the neonatal ICU, did you did you find the kind of um, the responses of the parents that had lost their babies, do you find, did you find that to be quite similar to the responses that pet carers have when they lose their pets? Did it feel quite familiar, you know, that environment with the pet loss environment?
1: Absolutely. My first experience with uh, professionally helping people with loss was in the neonatal intensive care unit. So I, I believe that that really set the stage for me to understand how devastating the loss is and and then again how support and validation and tools can help the healing process begin now what was so interesting back in 1986 is that people who had lost human loved ones could not relate to people who had lost companion animals and felt slighted you know they didn't understand how can you compare the two but I can tell you that in my years of experience and the honor that I have had of hearing the stories of people who were so bonded to their companion animals, who were able to tap into the magic that is the human-animal bond, grieves very similarly to those who have lost a loved one, be it a child or a sibling or a good friend. Grief is related to the depth of the the bond, not the species or the relationship.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And um, before we get into talking about sort of veterinary staff in particular, I just wanted to pick up on a word that you used and just um, wanted to ask you to clarify it just for the audience if they're not familiar with it. I think you said about um, pet loss being considered by one of the people you approached very early on as, or you said it was a disenfranchised loss. And I wondered if you could just explain a little bit more what we mean by disenfranchised in the context of, of a loss.
1: Absolutely. Um, The term we use, disenfranchised, meaning that it's not considered a real loss. That it's not a loss that is, that warranted the same type of sympathy. And that's because, you know, different people have different attitudes about what's love and what's a relationship. Another disenfranchised loss back in the 80s was when, uh, during the AIDS epidemic, When partners, you know, one of the partners would die, the other partner was not getting support because the relationship was not, back in the 80s, not considered something that people thought was valid. And so they didn't honor the surviving partner with the same type of support they would with a heterosexual married couple. So disenfranchised just, you know, it means off to the side. Uh, not the same support. Luckily, that's changed for both of these uh,
0: groups. <laughs> yeah, years. fantastic. Um, so, as you know, the um, the audience for this podcast is pretty much veterinarians and veterinary nurses or technicians, as I as you call them over there. But I understand that um, there's a move to try and get that word changed. Is that right? Yes, it is. <laughs> I
1: love it. Should be uh, uh, nurses. Uh, and some of our veterinary clinics are using that term already here we're still saying technicians but Um,
0: so I wanted to um, you know talk about the issue that you raised already which was a recognition of the fact that many veterinary um, individuals are actually pet carers themselves with their own companion animals at home and I wondered if you could say a few words about helping veterinary staff when they face their own pet bereavement about dealing with the grief, both outside and inside of the working environment, and also whether there are any aspects of pet loss grief that kind of apply more to veterinary staff than others, or that are more kind of specific to veterinary staff. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I think you're right that that many of uh, the veterinary professionals absolutely do have their own companion animals at home, and often times that's why they get into the field because they recognize they have a deep respect and love and want to help as many companion animals as they can. So, let me first say that it's quite ironic that many hospitals, ours included, get the most thank you notes from the way we have helped people with gentle euthanasias and end-of-life decisions. However, when it comes to people who are working in the hospital environment a lot of times you know it it turned out that people didn't know what to say to each other i've had people come up to my office and you know i'm going back a number of years and i'll tell you how we how we fixed this but i would have people come into my office and say enid i've just lost my dog of 15 years and everybody at work knew how much i loved him but nobody's saying anything to me. They're all avoiding eye contact, and I feel like nobody cares. And that's one perspective. I would have another person come to my office and say, Oh my gosh, I just lost my dog of 15 years, and I come into work, and everybody's telling me that they're sorry, and all I can do is cry. I can't focus on work. Why are they saying that to me at work? Yeah. So here you see that dilemma where people receive and accept support in different ways. And the way that uh, I decided to help support people but also give them some emotional space at work is when somebody here has the loss of a personal pet, I write them a note and offer to set up a memorial table in honor of their pet here at work. And what that consists of is a beautiful table where I have them send me some of their favorite photos of their pet. I have them write. A paragraph or two about their bond and what was special about that pet and then I put out a candle and a blank journal and I send out an all-staff email and I, I say to them you know dear Dove family so-and-so has uh, experienced the death of their beloved pet uh, there's a memorial table set up please visit it and look at the photos and share your condolences with them in this blank journal so that they will know that you care but not be triggered at work to fall apart if you, you know, if you were to confront them directly. And that way people can receive support and know that their Dove family cares about them but also have the space to to stay composed during their shift.
0: That sounds like a, a really lovely idea. Not something I've heard about at all, which I'm sure won't surprise you, because I imagine it's um, it's quite uh, unique to what you do. Do you know Do you know of any other places that are doing something like a memorial table?
1: I I share it, and so my hope is that more clinics are doing it. I know of another clinic where they uh, what they have embraced is during the Day of the Dead, uh, they have all of their employees bring pet uh, photos of their pets who have passed, as well as special clients' pets, and they set up a beautiful table and honor them, you know, during that holiday.
0: That sounds fantastic, and I guess this is a bit of a crude question, but, you know, how often would you say that at Dove, you are doing that? Is it, I'm not, I'm not a, I am not I do not exactly have a handle on the number of staff that you have, but um, <laughs> is it a sort of fortnightly occurrence, or?
1: Well, we have uh, about 107 staff because we are 24-7 yeah. and I get notifications anywhere from one to three times a month letting me know that somebody has experienced a loss and, and I would say that about 75 percent of the time the person who has experienced the loss is in favor of having a memorial table set up in their pet's honor and I would be happy to send you some photos that you can then show on your uh, website.
0: Yeah, that would be fantastic. Yeah, they're okay. just beautiful. Excellent. And the, I guess sort of leading on to that, one of the things I was thinking when you were describing the memorial table was about, you know, whether um, staff are actually still present at work. And I wanted to talk to you about compassionate leave following pet bereavement. Um, I think it's an issue that I come across online often, discussed in various contexts about whether places of work should be offering their staff compassionate leave after pet bereavement um, and where places that you know are that do that or not and I wondered um, you know what your thoughts were whether it's something that Dove Lewis does and kind of are you aware of whether there is a general trend within the veterinary profession or just the wider working environment about people offering this more or not?
1: I think that it's uh you know it really varies from from clinic to clinic I am proud to say that here at Dove Lewis we do offer compassion leave for people who have experienced the death of a companion animal its eight hours off so that's you know a, a day um, but it is flexible uh, which is wonderful as well Because as anybody who loves uh, their companion animals knows, some some losses are anticipated through illness or old age some uh, it may be an accident and unexpected and so depending on the circumstances uh, we may allow more time paid time off. Uh, Regarding other hospitals in the area I do know of a couple that also do offer this to their uh, employees and I think that that is a trend that's moving forward I mean because most practices now are not just doing medicine, they're doing bond-centered practices where they're taking care of not only the animal but the people that are related to the animal. And I think that it's so important that hospitals and clinics provide that for their own staff and set the precedent and honor their staff the way they take care of their clients.
0: Yeah, no, to be honest, I'm, I've not thus far been in the position of being a decision maker in a hospital, but um, I personally think it's 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 essential. and. Uh will be sure to institute it when I get the opportunity. Um, So, Enid, I wanted to kind of move on and um, I guess talk about euthanasia, but really sort of in the context of whilst we are talking about staff, you know, suffering bereavement with their own pets. And we've obviously said, well, you know, in different places, they may have a period of compassionate leave. But um, presumably quite soon, they're going to have to go on to either perform or at least participate in the euthanasia of other people's pets. And I wonder whether this is something that can trigger a grief episode for that staff member um, that has suffered a loss and whether you feel that there's a place for practices to be saying, you know, if you've suffered a recent loss of your own pet, then maybe you would be excluded from being involved in euthanasias for some sort of reasonable agreed period of time.
1: I do believe that a hospital that has a healthy staff, where they all, you know, have good communication and work together, that accommodations can be made if there are enough staff. For example, here, if uh, somebody who has experienced a recent death of, let's say, they had an Irish setter, and someone comes in for euthanasia and it's an old Irish setter certainly that would be a trigger they can say to one of their coworkers will you take my place and i'll take your responsibilities so there's sort of an informal way to care for each other on the other hand some people after saying goodbye to their pets you know see it as such an honor to be the person to help another family say goodbye to their pet And so even though it's still raw for them, it also is almost like an anecdote to pain to be able to help another family with such a beautiful and gentle farewell. So, you know, it's it's very, very individual. People who are uh, triggered intensely, and when I say triggered, when I mean the thought of being in a euthanasia or providing a euthanasia uh, is really something that they can't even possibly imagine because it hurts too much is also an opportunity for a person to say, hey, I need to take care of myself. Time alone isn't going to heal, but I need to address my feelings and understand them and accept them so that I can move forward and continue to do the things that I need to do in this profession. So it all comes down to communication and support. We don't want to make assumptions, uh, however, to be available to be available and to be flexible to help our co-workers after an, their own personal loss, I think, is essential to a, a clinic that runs well, where the people feel good about where they work, and then they're also feeling good about the people they're helping. It, it's just like one big circle.
0: So that's that's really interesting to me because I guess I hadn't um, I hadn't thought about the angle where, you know, people may want to participate in the euthanasia, but also potentially where it could be, useful in, in allowing them to sort of facilitate the processing of their own grief by being, you know, taking part in, in those sort of episodes. I guess my default assumption was that it would probably be something that was, um, you know, more painful, but you're, you're saying that not always the case. And that, I think that's a really important take home or, message. Or it's
1: always painful, but that the pain can be funneled mm. in different ways. For some people, they may want to avoid it uh, because it makes them too sad and for other people you know, they may feel that that they are capable of uh, providing such an amazing service that they want to share that.
0: Yeah. Excellent. I think that's really interesting. Um, so, I kind of wanted to move on now, but I think a lot of this, the content of this podcast, is sort of interrelated anyway. And I kind of put it under this title of emotional well-being. Um, but I wanted to now talk about a subject that I think is, again, is, is really important and is starting to get more recognition in the profession and that is um, the subject of compassion fatigue. So from looking at the Dove Lewis website it does seem like you guys are pretty active in openly recognizing this and providing advice and information and I wanted to start by asking you first if you could please explain to us what compassion fatigue is and why it might be something that veterinary staff and indeed other people that work with animals you know might be susceptible to.
1: Sure. Well, a veterinary care absolutely uh, has a cost of caring in the veterinary field. By caring for these animals, the practitioners, the veterinary community, are exposed to pain and suffering just as emergency workers or uh, ambulance drivers And it's super important to be aware that there is this cost of caring because when one's in a field where they're exposed to this type of secondary trauma, they have to take extra good care of themselves to be able to sustain a well-being to continue their excellent level of care. So for example, if a, a, a veterinary doctor has had a very difficult day and there was a tragic accident and they were exposed to a lot of crying from the animal and from the human difficult decisions had to be made and then right after that let's say a euthanasia and at the end of the shift you know they're going to be emotionally exhausted many people who are caregivers are going to then go home and take care of their own pets or their own family and take care of others and just sort of stuff this horrible day down, sort of tamp it down and try to move on. And day after day after day of that has that compassionate, compassion fatigue effect where you just start to feel, you know, exhausted and worn down and instead of loving going to work and loving what you do, you start feeling like, Oh, my gosh, it's another shift or another hard day or how am I going to do this? And and then negativity may set in or short temper or just that general feeling of not loving what you do anymore. And that's tragic because so many people get into this industry because they do love animals and they do love what they do, but they're not taking care of themselves and able, to be able to sustain this amazing care. So that, that's what happens if a per- person isn't acknowledging that they do have to take extra good care of themselves if they're going to be in the veterinary field taking care of others and being exposed to pain and trauma. What we try to teach, what I try to teach both here at Dove Lewis and at other veterinary hospitals is that one has to learn to be aware of what these stressors are and also to take care of themselves so that it doesn't build up. And that means having a well rounded life. It means healthy nutrition, exercise, good sleep habits, hobbies, ways to replenish and honor oneself. You know, you can't just give and give and give and not run out. There's a saying that the heart must first pump blood to itself before it can pump blood to the rest of the body. And same thing with a veterinarian or a veterinary nurse is that you have to take care of yourself in order to continue taking care of others a lot of people in this industry industry feel that if they take the time to do something nice for themselves like a massage or a long hike you know that that something else is not getting cared for and that they're bad or that they're selfish but what I'm trying to really really push with people is that it is essential that they take this time to take care of themselves so that they have the resilience and the energy to take care of their patients in the way they deserve to be cared for.
0: Yeah, fantastic. I couldn't I couldn't agree more to be honest. And, and you touched on um, some of the ways in which individuals can take care of themselves, but I wondered also what you think veterinary practices can do to try and mitigate the susceptibility of their staff to compassion fatigue. I mean, I guess the bottom line is the nature of the work means that the risk is never going to go away entirely, but what can practices do to try and mitigate the susceptibility?
1: There is so much that practices can do, and I see the tide changing in this regard also, thank goodness. Uh, One of the things is to have enough staff on hand so that the staff that are available are not working 80 hours a week. I mean, with a job that, has this much emotional wear and tear, it's very important that people only work a regular work week. But as you probably see in the veterinary field, a lot of times the 10-hour shift turns into the 14-hour shift or somebody's not available uh, or calls in sick, and so people are taking on extra shifts to make extra money or to help out. And I really would like to see a stop to that to protect our veterinary staff from becoming completely burned out and overwhelmed uh, they need to have the time away to replenish to address other areas of their lives so that they can fill their cup back up and let their steam off so one is you know look at schedules don't over schedule people and another one is to have healthy snacks and hydration available you know years ago we uh, were talking to our staff about uh, drinking water, be, you know, not getting dehydrated and, and eating. And, and we realized that all there was was a vending machine with the unhealthy snacks. And so we went ahead and we created a healthy bistro with healthy drinks and healthy meals so that it was easy for people to access that, to try and uh, really enforce people taking breaks breaks, breaks to walk around the block, to get fresh air, to stretch, uh, it's it's critical for well-being. And again, people worry that if they leave for five or ten minutes that everything's going to fall apart. But if you, you have a staff that insists on these wellness breaks, the other co-workers can pitch in knowing, okay, when that person comes back, it will be my turn. But, but You know, these are sort of management type of of issues where we would like to see the management encouraging this type of healthier behavior. We're very lucky here at Dove that uh, I've been allowed to start a few programs that also facilitate wellness, not only education and lectures about what compassion fatigue is, how to recognize it, and how to combat it, but we also have, have art therapy every month. And what I do is I set up wonderful activities, leave them out for five days and five nights to encourage people to take a few minutes away from the hospital floor and sit with their colleagues and build a relationship away from the chaos, but also to de-stress. Research shows that art and healing come from the same place. And what we know is that when a person is creating art, or as healing, that they will emit the same brave brainwave patterns. Art and healing is so powerful that there are hospitals that are incorporating that into their care all over the place. That's very, very easy to do.
0: Um, you know, uh, we I'm also... Yeah. Sorry, just to interrupt you, but um, one of the things I wanted to ask you was, and you were saying about management needs to uh, uh, support or encourage this staff with these practices. Do you, do you ever find that the staff are, are maybe cynical of what management is trying to encourage with respect to these kinds of ideas? Or I, I guess why I'm asking is because um, maybe cynical is not the right word, but when I was listening to you describe the scenario where you've been working well beyond the end of your shift, you haven't had a drink of water for a long time, you haven't had anything to eat for a long time, and yet you don't feel like you can leave either. And the notion that someone would be encouraging you to leave, and, and just I was looking at that scenario in my mind thinking... I'm probably one of those people who at that time would have just thought I needed to stay there because the whole place might fall, <laughs> might fall down. Has um, is there, is there been a kind of harmonious relationship between management promoting these sorts of ideas and the staff adopting them? Or
1: I believe that uh, it does help to have the, sta- uh, the management promoting it. What I've noticed is that when you have one person who gets healthy, who learns about what they need to do to be healthy and care for themselves but that management isn't supporting it there's a lot of resistance and a lot of anger from the rest of the staff Uh, I've even been asked to speak at hospitals where the culture is so pro overworking everybody you know like if somebody is there for 20 hours or stays you know with a patient long after their shift Instead of people saying to them, you need to go home and take care of yourself, people are saying, oh, you're amazing, you're terrific, wow, we need more people like you. <laughs> and so what we're trying to do is change that because that's, it's not sustainable. Yeah. You know, once in a while maybe, but that is not sustainable. And that's, you know, what we're trying to do in the veterinary community is is help people to have healthy work-life balance habits so that they can stay in the field in the 30 years I've been doing this I have seen so many amazing veterinarians burn out people who devoted their life to taking care of animals who who went through all of that education who own all of that money and loans who just get so exhausted that they just can't do it another minute and that's heartbreaking because their center, you know their soul wants to work with animals But the work environment just eats them up and spits them out. And so this change is essential for uh, veterinary clinics to hold on to their excellent doctors and nurses.
0: I agree. And um, I guess you sort of touched on it, but I wanted to just um, bring it up again, really, for, for a bit of clarity. And that was, how do we recognize both as individuals, but also with respect to our colleagues, that maybe we are starting to suffer from compassion fatigue? I'm presuming that compassion fatigue is not a is not an either or phenomenon like you know like pregnancy, but it is something that potentially you know continues to grow and grow and grow until perhaps you reach burnout points. So how do we start to recognize that as early as possible in ourselves and in our colleagues and obviously what can we then do about it?
1: Right uh, well, you're exactly right. Um, what's so funny is that it is so much easier for people to recognize it in their colleagues than in themselves as you can imagine, and some telltale signs in a hospital or with a person looking at someone else or even at themselves is, for example, you have someone new into the field, a new nurse or doctor, and let's say you have a a dog that is struggling and crying and doesn't want to get its blood drawn. Somebody who's not suffering from any compassion fatigue who has support from management to take care of themselves and therefore is getting, you know, breaks and hydration. um, They're going to stroke that dog's head. They're going to say to him, it's okay, little guy. You know, I know you miss your family. We just need to take this blood. We're going to hold you firmly. And the doctor and the nurse together are going to gently control that dog to get the blood draw that they need. Somebody who is suffering from compassion fatigue who is not taking care of themselves or feels overworked is going to more likely scruff the dog roughly possibly throw a blanket over its face and very roughly draw the blood as quickly as they can without regard to how the dog is feeling I mean now what that it's they're still getting the blood draw but that really affects a person's sense of self and what they're doing I mean they don't get into this field because they want to be rough or irritated with animals. They get into this field because they love them and they want to help them. But those, you know, that's one of those just very subtle um, cultural shifts that can occur in an unhealthy hospital floor, which then, you know, the veterinarian and the nurse will begin to see as acceptable. And quite honestly, it's not. That. And that's why, you know, that's why I say you have to take care of yourself in order to take care of others. People can go online, and I, I can send you a link for this as well, to take a free, uh, you know, test to say, you know, am, where am I on the scale of compassion fatigue? But the truth is, is that awareness that it's a possibility and having healthy boundaries and work-life balance, that's going to keep people from suffering from compassion fatigue or combating it.
0: And what also, would you, sorry, what yeah. would you suggest, you know, say someone's worried or, you know, that one of their colleagues may be suffering from compassion fatigue, um, how, how would you recommend that they go about, you know, raising their concerns or addressing that situation?
1: Part of it is leading by example and by taking good care of themselves and starting at a strength, you know, maybe, saying to a person um, you know I've got the floor right now why don't you go take a break and you know being nice role modeling some of this healthy behavior uh, also uh, anecdotes to compassion fatigue are noticing positive things that are going on and so if they see someone who's a little bit rough around the edges but notice them doing a lovely job um, fixing up an animal's bed or talking nicely to them, is pointing that out, that lifts a person up. And so, again, a cultural shift of instead of people, you know, looking for what's negative and and focusing on that, is to go around and look at what's going right and build upon that. Regarding speaking to a manager about someone else's, uh, concerns about someone else's compassion fatigue, uh, think that there is a place for that as well. Um, I think it probably depends on the particular hospital, you know, what the, what the management style is like. But we have to really lead by example. We can't fix other people. We have to fix ourselves and hope other people are inspired.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Um, thanks a lot for that. I think it's a really important topic, and I will certainly um, get the link from you and uh, and share that when I share the podcast. I wanted to um, I wanted to kind of move on and talk about stress. Although, as I said at the beginning, I think all of these things are essentially interrelated by the emotional well-being state. But um, it's it's an obvious thing to say that many people find or can find uh, life in veterinary practice to be pretty stressful, and I wondered if you could say a few words about this and also what people can do to try and help mitigate and, and kind of manage their workplace stress. And I guess it's going to have some overlap with some of the stuff you've talked about before, but um, I'm also presuming that stress and compassion, fatigue are, you know, not, are not the same thing. So I wonder if you could say something about stress in the workplace as well.
1: Sure. Well, uh, of course you're right. There is stress when you see uh, animals that are in pain or suffering or, or colleagues that, that are, being overworked like yourself. Um, There's so many ways that we have stressors in our lives and again you know work-life balance can help us to become more resilient to stress. What I really recommend for people in the veterinary field is to take a few minutes and to develop a personal mission statement. Now the reason for that, that would be to be able to put into words why you're in this field. Why, for example, are you working in an emergency ICU critical care hospital? That's very stressful just by the nature of the work. And so I say to a person, you know, think about, you know, I'm at Dove Lewis because I'm working with, uh, you know, amazing doctors. We're doing cutting edge med- medication. I love the adrenaline rush. Um, And so they know why they're here. Now, some of the stressors are long shifts, lack of sleep, ability to do amazing veterinary care, but a large number of people not being able to afford it. So having to euthanize animals that could be helped if the money was available. Different stressors like this. But if a person says, but I'm here because I like the cutting edge medicine, I like my colleagues, I like the emergency care then they can understand what the benefit and the cost is. And so that way, the stress isn't driving their... I don't know, it's not driving how they feel. It's one of the costs of being in this field, and they recognize that. They're willing to do that. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm being clear. Another cost, for example, would be, um, well, as I said, euthanizing animals that could be could be helped. That is. Stressful, that is painful. However, if a person who's working here realizes that sometimes they're going to have to deal with that, but they think it's worth it because they're getting all of the benefits of working in an amazing institution, they can handle that stress better because they don't feel controlled by it. They're choosing to accept it. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love the idea of a, a personal mission statement. Do you, um, is it something that you sort of recommend that they carry around with them or they refer to it regularly or does it get put somewhere or?
1: And I absolutely suggest that not only they write it, but that they do check in with it, especially on a day when they're feeling worn down and exhausted and that they can remind themselves why they're here and see, is it still worth it? Are the costs still worth the benefits? And the mission statement can change. Uh, a funny story I have is I was doing a compassion fatigue workshop with the staff here a number of years ago. And and as they were writing their mission statement, one woman realized, she goes, I just ended up here. I never really chose to be here. I really <laughs> want to go to school. And it's like, well, hello. <laughs> Good get back down to yourself. And that's, again, you know, are we steering where we're going or are we letting outside circumstances steer us and the mission statement really helps us clarify you know what we want to do in life and and it can be an ongoing mission statement it doesn't mean that once you write it you're stuck yes check back refer to it from time to time and see what's changed
0: yeah I think it's brilliant because I you know I certainly recognize um, having done emergency critical care for I don't know 13 years now or so. <laughs> um, I certainly recognize you know thankfully less in myself, although maybe I'm in denial, but certainly in others around me I have you know you you can see that the stress and the emotional toil and everything becomes a constant daily frustration and something to complain about and all that kind of stuff and you do wonder where the insight into why they're actually there, you know, where that where that is still, and is it still there? And is it something they're paying attention to? And I love your idea of have a personal mission statement, refer back to it, make sure that you're still, you know, contented to be where you are, and that it's still meeting what you were trying to do and all of that. And I think that is um, a a really good point. That's definitely worth um, reiterating. And, And I might get onto my own personal mission statement after this, to be honest.
1: Yeah, you can you can Google writing a personal mission statement, and there are a lot of tips out there. There's even forms which uh, help make it easier. Oops. Um, sorry. Uh, what else I was gonna say is for stress also, and I keep you know driving home work life balance because that is essential. And getting exercise helps both the body and the mind. Helps release. Uh, some stress releases endorphins which help us deal with stress but on the job stress if it's if it's a uh, particularly difficult day again anecdotes to this type of stress and build above compassion fatigue is to find ways to replenish and and so that may be uh, taking a few minutes and instead of doing a procedure to one of the patients in the hospital is to sit on the floor and put it in your lap and talk to it and pet it and tell it about its family or or fluff up its bed and make a nice sweet spot for it or look around and try to find something that a coworker is doing that you think is admirable and go up and you know pat them on the back and say that was really awesome how you just spoke to that family or the way you restrained that cat was so gentle i really appreciated seeing you doing that these little niceties are actually anecdotes to stress. They get us back in touch with our humanity and why we're there and why we're helping.
0: So sort of, um, you know, uh, I guess uh, bringing up some regular positive energy and compassion into your daily uh, daily work life. Again, that's sort of a kind of yin and yang thing. It sounds, again, that sounds like a really fantastic idea. And, and I guess it's something that's easy to in the stress, and in inverted commas, of being busy in clinical cases and having a lot of stuff to do and, and, and so on. I, I guess it is something that can be um, easily overlooked. You almost feel like you need some kind of alarm raised every hour or so, something that says, do something nice.
1: <laughs> well, it, you know, and it really just takes one person buying into this philosophy and very subtly beginning it. Yeah. And, and, you know, with, with luck, it will catch on. There's other things that we can do um, to help soften our shift or bring us back in touch with our humanity. So, for example, uh, maybe at your hospital like ours, there are a lot of euthanasias each day. Uh, There are strays that are so badly hurt that they have to be humanely euthanized. There are people who come in. And what we have for the families, we have a beautiful comfort room, which is like an exam room, but without the metal table, there's a couch and a big rug on the floor and a way to, it's almost like a home euthanasia, which is uh, really lovely. But when strays come in or people drop their pets off because and they don't want to be with them, you know, what I've noticed is is that we have some staff who wanted to make it a, wanted to honor the procedure more. And so now uh, when these certain staff work when there's a euthanasia happening on the hospital floor what they do is they just flicker the lights for a moment indicating to people let's stop laughing and talking about our weekend plans and have a moment to acknowledge that we're going to be helping an animal transition from this life to no more life and it's a it's a bit of respect and care which again gets us back in touch with the fact that we're here to to take care of the animals whether it's helping them heal or helping them transition and it's, uh, you know, it's a very small thing, but it makes a difference in in the way people go on with their day.
0: Um, I, uh, I I totally agree with everything you're saying, and I want to come and work at Dove Lewis. But anyway, um, <laughs> let's. Um, w- one of the things I guess that that comes over loud and clear from listening to you is obviously you you've you said a few times about it takes one individual, and then more and more people catch on. You've talked about management, and I guess what I'm getting is that somewhere like Dove Lewis you probably walk into that place and there is almost a palpable culture where a lot of these things are ingrained and embedded in, in the hospital. And I suppose I wanted to ask you about what kind of staff turnover you have and do you find that staff turnover can impact on the culture of the hospital? Does it take newcomers some time to embed or do you tend to attract like-minded people anyway and so this is kind of what they are, what they're about?
1: I believe that we do draw amazing people to come and work here because we do have uh, so many wonderful aspects of our hospital and our program and the way it's run even with uh, wonderful management and a culture that is generally pretty good but you know people have ups and downs and that always affects the way things work we still have, a big turnover. I think it's an industry issue and part of it has to do with the difficult hours and the pay scale and people not realizing how challenging it is to be around the emotional stress of animals that are hurt and suffering and families that can't always afford to pay. I mean there's a lot of of great ups to it also, but it does take a really a strong person who knows why they've entered into this field to be able to sustain being uh, at the hospital for a long time. We do have uh, many staff who have been here five and ten years, a few that have been here fifteen, but I do see, we do see more turnover in the industry than um, we like to see, and I see that throughout. I see uh, all the different hospitals are, are sort of You know, always struggling to stay fully staffed. There's a shortage on certified veterinary nurses, and so that's you know that's a problem. You need a lot of veterinary nurses to support the doctors to really help everything run smoothly. So even with all of the best intentions, it's still a an ongoing challenge. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, Yeah. And I think that um, I wanted to end the podcast. Actually, one of the things I want to say before we finish, we have to talk about some positivity as well (laughs) because I don't want to leave people thinking that, you know, it's all downside. And I know and we know that it's definitely not all downside. Um, But I wanted to just talk about this fact. And this is that, um, you know, we always hear that within the veterinary profession, the rates of people becoming disillusioned, the rates of depression, addiction to be that alcohol or drugs. And, you know, indeed, the rates of suicide um, are kind of near at the top, if not the highest among the professions. And I guess we've touched on some of this already, but I wondered if you could just say a little bit more about that and, you know, whether that's your understanding as well. And just to reiterate why veterinary staff might be so susceptible and again, what individuals, but also practices can try and do to mitigate some of this. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, I believe that very bright and sensitive and caring people are drawn to the veterinary industry. Also, to become a certified veterinary nurse and a veterinary doctor or surgeon or criticalist takes a type of personality that is pretty hard on themselves. You know, someone who has incredibly high expectations and very smart and able to follow through and so you've got you know this personality type to begin with and there are there is some disillusion in as we all know how animals are treated in the world and so you need to have resilient people they need to not only be super intelligent and compassionate but they need to be emotionally resilient and I always encourage people to explore personal growth and take care of themselves I believe that people who commit and achieve suicide are not as emotionally healthy in general. I don't think that it's something about the veterinary profession that is causing people to get depressed or commit suicide. This is an underlying issue that's already there in a person that may be triggered. Um, I think that why we're seeing higher numbers of suicide that's been achieved by veterinarians is because they have the access and the know-how to the drug. And so that brings the numbers up. There are a lot of other professions where people are uh, suicidal or attempting suicide, but they don't achieve it because they don't have this fail-proof method. But I just... um, I just think that, again, if, if people recognize that by taking care of themselves they're going to be even better veterinarians and nurses, that, that things will shift dramatically. We, we can't, nobody can sustain just giving and giving and giving. One has to take care of themselves in order to continue doing that. And if you take care of yourself physically and emotionally and spiritually, then you'll feel better about life and you'll be able to ride past those various stressors that come along the way
0: and um, Ina, do you think that this is something that that maybe we should start talking about with people during the student stage so rather than saying you know get into practice and then we'll try and and ingrain a culture into you like you know should we sort of start very early on so that people are leaving their courses already you know on the with the idea that they need to be taking care of themselves better and i guess one of the tensions that people may face then is if they go into a working you know their first practice for example and that isn't really the culture of the environment and then there is a tension there between what they're trying to do and what the culture of their new practice is
1: yes absolutely i do believe that the tide is changing and i know here in the us there are new programs for veterinary social work and there are schools that are merging with some of the social work programs to help teach about working with people when they're anticipating uh, death or choosing euthanasia and giving them these people skills you know ironically so many uh, veterinarians are introverts they don't even like people they have a hard time talking to them and so You know, they go into the field thinking, I'm just going to take care of all of these animals. But the fact of the matter is, they need to learn how to communicate with the person who brings the animal in. And veterinary uh, schools, I believe, are becoming more aware of this and teaching more of these skills. If a person has learned this in school and then they go to a clinic where the culture is completely different, if they cannot make a positive impact on the culture, leave. Leave. We even find one that aligns with your personal values. You'll be happier and you'll have a, a, uh, a better experience and you wouldn't be as likely to suffer from compassion, fatigue, or depression. And, um, but do you, so know who you
0: yeah. are. Sorry, just okay. on a kind of practical a practical note, really. I mean, one of the things I hear from people, you know, who, who are in their first or second jobs and they're really not very happy in those jobs is this issue of, well, at least it's a job. Um and can I find another one, and how am I going to find a place that i'm going to be happy in and you know i've known I've known young vets who've gone through two, three, four jobs, and then finally found somewhere that they were happy and I've had others who you know really felt like they didn't want to leave their job in case they couldn't find that place and then you know were they going to be unemployed so I mean do you think that sort of practical consideration is something that i'm that's real, or am I kind of over egging it?
1: I think you're exactly right, but here's the thing if uh, if a person goes to you know, their first job or their second job and they realize, oh my God, this is a really negative culture, it's not good for the people who work here, the animals aren't getting the top-notch care, I'm going to leave. If more and more people are doing that, eventually these clinics that aren't up to par are going to have to improve their game in order to hire and keep veterinarians. And so, you know, I urge people to stay strong and, and find the job that's right for them. They know the career is right for them. Find the place to work and either help lift it up or look for a place that's better. But when a person just sort of shrugs their shoulder and says, this is it, I have to stay here. Okay, that doesn't align with the personal mission statement. Then again, they become the victim of their circumstances instead of the person driving their circumstances. I, I know that it sounds simplistic and I'm not saying somebody should quit on day one, but as soon as they recognize this place isn't good for my mental health, it isn't helping me, you know, evolve in my career, start looking. You can still look while you're at a place. I'm just saying don't settle because it's going to have wear and tear
0: yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I, you know, I've known people who have, um, you know, unfortunately earlier on, didn't didn't make those choices, and then very quickly left the profession, for example. Um, and then others that you know, left for a while, came back in a better position and were much happier afterwards, and so on. And it's um, I think I think it's a practical challenge, but but really very 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 important. Um, Inid, I wanted to just end the podcast with something that you kind of mentioned briefly, but I would love to hear more about, and that is that. I think that Dove Lewis offers, I don't know if it's a wellness program or a variety of wellness programs, but you offer, you know, some great stuff for your staff, and I wondered if you could just tell the rest of us about what kinds of things you do there to try and look after the um, the kind of emotional, spiritual well-being of your staff.
1: Yes, well, I'm so proud that this month we are in the middle of our second annual wellness month here at Dove. We had one last January and during Wellness Month we have yoga instructors coming in twice a month. We have healthy snacks like fruits and vegetables and nuts and healthy drinks laid out, easy access for the staff to grab free of charge, amazing art activities that are aimed to replenish the soul. For example, Scented bath salts. So easy. I set out a bunch of mason jars. I bought some big 70-pound bags of Epsom salts and a variety of different essential oils and ribbons and stickers and said to people, come on up and make some essential bath salts for yourself and then go home and have a nice soak. And again, this takes five minutes uh, for the people to make, but it's saying, yes, you know, you need to continue to take care of yourself. We have lectures. We're going to have a lecture tomorrow on work-life balance. We wrote to the massage school and said, hey, we're taking care of our staff this month. Would you be interested in sending some of your students over to give us free massages? And the overwhelming response was, yes, we love animals too. We want to help (laughs) your staff. We had a beautician come in and do makeovers on people. Again, during the month, during this wellness month where we really – Um, do something every day is to kind of kickstart people and say, look at, you know, if you take this time to take care of yourself and replenish yourself, it's going to make your day and your week and your month even better. And so what we're hoping to do during this month is kickstart healthy habits. And it has been surprisingly successful. We still will continue with the yoga, where it'll be a couple times a month free where we will have a yoga instructor come here and people can come uh, do their their yoga or their relaxation we continue with art memorial art therapy every month where people can create different art just to de-stress as I said we have uh, the healthy snacks occasionally we do a potluck but we are trying to make it very easy and enjoyable for people to see that by doing these little nice things for themselves throughout the day, throughout the week, can help them to feel better about themselves, better about the work they do, and better about their coworkers.
0: And um, how big is WS? I mean, do you, when you do things like yoga and stuff, do you have a sort of dedicated room where you can do that sort of thing? Or is it a matter of just finding some space somewhere? Or?
1: <laughs> We're lucky. Um, we do have a community room, which is used for lectures. It's used for art therapy. It's used for different trainings, and so we we can do yoga in there as well. Generally, there are anywhere between three and eight people who will attend, which in a way it seems like such a small percentage of our 107 people. However, you'd also be surprised that by the management supporting this type of wellness care gives people pause to think about it. So even if they don't come in to do all of these activities, Offered, they're being reminded that this is available and something that they should, you know, consider adding to their own life.
0: Yeah, I think it's, um, as I think that's that sounds fantastic. Um, so, you know, we're kind of reaching the end of the podcast, but before we finished, I just wondered if there was anything else that, um, that you wanted to say around the area of kind of emotional health and support, whether there was anything that you wish I should have asked or anything really important that I didn't ask you, then uh, this is your moment.
1: (laughs) I think you did a great job asking the questions. And what I'd like to really drive home is that emotional health and wellness starts within each individual person. You're not going to become less healthy or more healthy based on the environment that you're in if you have a strong sense of self. So take care of yourself first and then you will be able to be resilient to deal with the ups and downs that your work or that your life throws your way. Uh, Personal growth is important. Don't expect your joy or your sadness to be taken care of by other people. Take ownership and responsibility. uh, Just something that's so easy to do that can really bring us just back in touch with the meaning of life is when you go home, instead of just looking at your, your dogs or your children or your spouse and just like, oh, my God, more people who need something from me. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, say, you know, give yourself, make yourself go in there for the 30-second hug, whether it's your child or your spouse or your dog. You know, it doesn't have to be words. It doesn't have to be anything. Just that reconnecting and feeling your humanity, and feeling the connection, and in that 30-second hug, your endorphins will be released, and you'll have some feel-good moments. We, A lot of us don't take time for that. It's just like, you know, it's the last thing on the list, but just that one little change can make the beginning of more positive changes, to remember, you know, to get, have that physical physical contact with, with those important beings in your
0: life. And actually, Edith, that reminds me of something else, really. And it's just um, in this scenario where you're finishing a shift and you're heading home and if you've had a difficult time on your shift, um, one of the things I was listening to a while ago was someone in the human medicine field, but they were sort of suggesting that, you know, if you're feeling particularly like that, maybe you should take a detour on the way home, park up somewhere, just have a bit of time out before you get home so you don't bring everything from work straight to those that you have at home and maybe sort of try and take yourself through a different state of mind so that you're then at home, you can do that 30-second hug, you can be with the family and your pets and, and, you know, try not to kind of take that baggage over with you. Do you think that's something that sounds like a good idea?
1: I think that's excellent, a ritual of sorts. It could be, you know, picking up a, a handful of stones and throwing out each one with a prayer. Like and this is for Fluffy who died, and this is for so and so, but yeah, any type of a ritual or uh, a transition that helps a person shift gears absolutely makes sense.
0: Excellent. Look, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave you <laughs> leave you alone now because we've been going for um <laughs> for quite a long time. But I just want to say thank you so much for joining me. As I as I mentioned at the start, um, I was really looking forward to uh, to doing this episode, and it really has been has been great. And I hope um you know that this podcast is going to bring listeners a lot of value and as i said at the beginning i think and it was really good to hear you you know you say that you feel like these sort of uh, conversations and these sort of issues are starting to get more and more attention in the sector because i think it is something that um you know that has at least been overlooked in the past and to be honest i think you know if i look at the things you describe about what you're trying to do at Dove lewis i don't i'm not sure how many places it will be uh out with the Uh, maybe a few in the U.S. that are necessarily doing that sort of stuff at the moment. So I think there is, you know, potentially um, quite a long way to go still.
1: Well, there is. And Shailen, thanks to people like you who are bringing this conversation out in the open. And that's, you know, we just need more of that. And I will be happy to send you uh, the variety of links so that the people who are interested in owning their own own emotional well-being can take these, these self-tests uh, and, and learn tips and really, you know, really decide that they're going to take the best care of themselves as, that they can so that they can continue doing the amazing work of helping the animals in our lives.
0: Amen to that. <laughs> okay, so thanks very much, Enid. And um, to the listeners, then, as always, please do feel free to get in touch. Um, you kind of know the usual details, but there's a contact form on the website which is uh, VetECCSmalltalk.com you can email me at Shailen at gmail.com you can tweet me at VetEMCC or look us up on Facebook at Veterinary ECC Small Talk page Um, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's episode and of course if you've got any questions or comments I will gladly pass them on to Enid and actually Enid I'll, um, I'll check with you later in terms of you know what sort of contact details would be best to share with the listeners um, for them to get hold of you directly if, if you're happy with that. Oh,
1: that would be great.
0: Fantastic. Okay. And um, I guess I would say to the listeners that with this episode more than any other, I think we would both ask and indeed urge you to please share, you know, share the episode with your colleagues so that we can try and bring a bit more recognition to these really important issues um, and to the whole issue of emotional well-being in the profession. And um, lastly, just my usual request to help support the podcast by rating and reviewing it in itunes and the next episode will be in around about four weeks time and so until then do take care of yourselves bye bye
1: Thanks for listening to this
0: episode of the Veterinary ECC Small Talk podcast. Please share your thoughts and comments on www.veteccsmalltalk.com or hit us up on social media. Until next time, keep up the small talk and the gibber jabber.